Psydactic Residency Edition. I am Dr. O'Leary, a third-year psychiatry resident in the National Capital Region. This podcast is my own personal way to be able to play with my toys and learn something new at the same time. I hope it finds you well, and I hope it helps you. My target audience are other psychiatry residents, but all are welcome. You need to be warned, though, that my advice is at best an educated guess. And so please don't hold me responsible if you actually believe me. I tried my best to be good at what I do, but my best is often incomplete and erroneous. So if you find yourself quoting me, please also think I should probably double-check those facts. Also, my opinion should not be confused with the official opinions of the federal government, the Department of Defense, the National Capital Consortium Psychiatry Residency Program, or the Maryland Fish and Wildlife Conservation Office. Let's start by imagining that a 28-year-old adult comes into your office complaining of concentration and attention problems. They believe they may have ADHD. Maybe I roll my eyes. It's not that the patient disturbs me. It's my own sense of competence evaluating them. The diagnostic criteria state that this person must have had symptoms prior to adulthood in order for me to diagnose ADHD. And those criteria were were written for young people. This person's 28. So let's imagine now that I do a very thorough assessment, including getting collateral from their friends and their siblings and their parents. I have two validated tools at my disposal that I can use to determine how likely their concerns are to actually represent ADHD. There's the Winder Utah rating scale. This is for ADHD symptoms um, prior to presentation. So it tries to post-dict whether or not this person had ADHD as a kid. And then there's the um, Adult ADHD Self-Report Scale, or ASRS, and that can help me to see if they still qualify for a diagnosis. So I have this Winder Utah Rating Scale, or WERS, and the Adult ADHD Self-Report Scale, or ASRS. I give the tests and both appear to have a positive result. They meet the cutoff point. They provide enough information for me to diagnose ADHD. So, what is the probability that my adult patient actually has ADHD? According to Bayesian reasoning, I can't just look at the raw result in front of me. I have to modify the result by also considering the prior probability that any person in a population who presented to me with the same complaints has ADHD. But, Dr. O'Leary, I mean, if they met diagnostic criteria, why do I need a prior probability? That seems like a lot of extra work. Yes, um, it is more work, and whether you want to do it depends on how confident you want to feel before prescribing someone a stimulant. 
if you don't have any qualms about stimulants, then you don't need to worry. Just prescribe away. But if you want to have a good level of certainty that you are appropriately prescribing stimulants, then Bayesian reasoning and statistics are here to help you. Let me explain. DSM criteria describe clinically relevant disorders. The diagnoses are primarily validated by inter-rater reliability. All that means is that multiple clinicians applying the same criteria generally reached the same conclusion. High inter-rater reliability, though, doesn't mean that the conclusion is right. If I were to sit down with 100 people and ask them to give me examples of how they might meet any of the criteria of ADHD, I could diagnose it all day long without much effort. There's a huge online industry that's basically doing this as I record this podcast, and in some ways they're getting in trouble by the federal government, but that's not what this podcast is about. If I were like them, I would be giving a lot of inappropriate diagnoses. I may also be missing real cases of ADHD. That is why we have tests like the WERS and the ASRS to help us. Their utility can be validated using methods that compare scores of patients with ADHD that we have a high confidence of being true with the scores of people who likely do not have ADHD and see how many false positives and false negative results we get if we set a cutoff score at any particular level. In general, I mean, you'd hope that higher scores will be very specific for ADHD and also very sensitive, which means that we'll have a low number of false positives when we diagnose someone with ADHD who does not have it. That's the specific part and a low number of false negatives when we don't diagnose ADHD in a patient that has it. That's the sensitive part. For low scores on these target tests, we expect that we would make some predictable mistakes. We will diagnose almost all cases of true ADHD with the disorder. Uh, we would get all those people diagnosed, but we'll also diagnose a lot of people with ADHD that don't actually have it. Now this is where Bayesian statistics come to the rescue. Let's imagine I give the WERS and or the ASRS to a lot of adults in a population, and I want to estimate how many of the positives will actually have ADHD and how many of the negatives um, will miss ADHD. What I need is a study that tested this already. Luckily, this study exists, and if you want to see it, just go to um, the transcript that's available at sidactic.buzzsprout.com, and uh, there will be a reference there at the end of that transcript. This study is not perfect, but it gives us good estimates of likelihood ratios that tell us how confident we can be in our results. However, a likelihood ratio, it needs a friend to be truly whole. It needs a prior probability to modify it so it can derive into a more accurate estimate of what the posterior probability that a person has ADHD is after they take the test and score positive or negative. 
So the posterior probability takes into account the prior probabilities and the likelihood that someone actually has ADHD. There are positive likelihood ratios. That's um, what a positive test may mean. And there are negative likelihood ratios. That's what a negative test might mean. In general, you want your positive likelihood ratio to be very large. And you want your negative likelihood ratio to be very small, a lot less than one. If you do that, then you have a test that's probably both very sensitive and very specific. Likelihood ratios can be calculated from uh, controlled studies, like the one that I referenced. But prior probabilities most of the time have to be estimated. And the way you estimate a prior probability in a lot of medical studies is that it's basically the probability that a random person selected from a population will have the disease. It's the population prevalence. It's the percentage of people in the population that, say, have ADHD at any given time. So now we have two numbers that are important, a positive test likelihood ratio and the prevalence, if I want to see if my positive is a good positive, or the negative likelihood ratio and the prevalence, if I want to see if my negative is really a negative. Without doing the math, uh, I'm going to report to you how this can change how you think about the results say, of a positive test for ADHD. If I have a population prevalence of 5% for ADHD, which is a reasonable estimate, and a person scores 46 on the WERS, which we know from the study I mentioned earlier corresponds to a positive likelihood ratio of 15, um, I may think that 46 on a WERS means my patient definitely has ADHD because it's a high cutoff point. I mean, the, the test is positive, so, you know, I mean, they meet criteria, right? But if you modify the result with the prior probability, which we estimate with a prevalence in the population of 5% in this case, then the posterior probability can be much, much lower. I might find that there's only, say, a 40 or 35% chance that this particular test result means that the patient truly has ADHD. But, <laughs> I mean, what the heck do I do with that number, Dr. O'Leary? I mean, I went from being 100% certain that this person had ADHD to basically, you know, a, either a coin flip or a, a rolling a three-sided die. Do those even exist? <laughs> I mean, I get it. It's frustrating. Now I have to do more work or I don't. I mean, if I'm comfortable with, say, a 50% chance that this person has ADHD, then I just prescribe the treatment and move on. If I need more confidence, though, then I need to gather more evidence, rule out other possible explanations very carefully, and question myself. This is especially important if the treatment is costly, has high risks or side effects, or has other possible consequences like addiction or diversion. I might also have a bias against diagnosing adults with ADHD because of my values. And using Bayesian statistics, I could actually quantify my bias. 
but I'll get to that later. Right now, let me stop and summarize. A positive test result for ADHD does not necessarily give a high probability that the patient has ADHD. If you consider a prior probability that the person has ADHD, and that prior probability is pretty low, then the positive test result may actually only be suggestive of ADHD. This means that using a validated test is not necessarily by itself good evidence of a pathology. If the prevalence of a disorder is high in a population, then a positive test result is more likely to be a true positive test result. If the prevalence is low, then a positive test result needs more investigation. It's not as likely to be true. Something similar can be said of uh, negative test results. In general, when a prevalence in a population is very low, then a negative test result is very likely to be a true negative test result. But if the prevalence in a population is high, then a negative test result um, is less likely to be true and may need more investigation. Some of the listeners may have already noticed that using the general population prevalence of a disorder as the prior probability may be fallacious. I like that word, so I'm going to say it again. Fallacious. Using the population prevalence would work if your patient was a random sample from the population. But are they? The population of patients who walk into your clinic are likely not random samples from the bigger population. So when you choose your prevalence or your prior probability, you want your population to be as specific to your patient as it can be. But numbers like this often don't exist. But their non-existence is not a deal killer. Imagine now that a 42-year-old financial officer with a master's degree comes into your clinic and asks to be evaluated for ADHD. She reports that uh, she always thought she might have it. Her family did not believe in psychiatry, and so uh, she's not sure of any family history of ADHD or other mental illness, but she does note that one of her uncles was the butt of a lot of jokes for really eccentric behaviors. She was generally an average student and had about a 3.0, but always had difficulty like studying and needed to repeat a few classes due to having to withdraw um, because she couldn't keep up. Her main problem is that she's having trouble now maintaining focus in meetings. She feels very disorganized, and she's missed some recent deadlines. What is the prior probability that a positive test result for this patient will be a true positive? Obviously, there's no study that estimates the population prevalence of ADHD among women financial officers with master's degrees who present for the first time. But just because I don't have that data doesn't mean I'm lost in the sauce. I can ask myself, is the population that she comes from more 
or less likely to have ADHD than a random person. So uh, is the population prevalence of her specific population higher or lower than the prevalence of ADHD in the general population? I might conclude that it's a lower prevalence than 5% in the general population. So then I can estimate that the prevalence of ADHD is either much lower, say one quarter of the population prevalence, or a little lower, say 75%, or just 50% of it, if I want to just split the difference. But this means that I can plug a lower or a very low prior probability estimate into my Bayesian calculator to determine, uh, for example, that the posterior probability of a positive test is only 1%. My estimate is better if I ground it on more valid estimates of population prevalence than I just, if I just pull it out of the ether. I mean, if I compare it to that 5% and I say, wow, in her case, it must be much lower than that 5%, then my prior can be very low, and that's reasonable. And with a very low prior and a positive test result, I can say to myself, the probability that she actually has HD is still very low, even though she tested positive. At this point, I can decide that maybe I shouldn't even give the test, <laughs> because... Um, I mean, the result wouldn't help me. If it were negative, maybe it would help me. If she had a negative test, then I would say with a lot of confidence, yes, you do not have ADHD. But if it were a positive test, I still would not have confidence that she has ADHD. I could use that test like as qualitative data to inform my clinical judgment in other areas. But, I mean, giving a patient a test risks maybe giving them false hope that they're going to get a diagnosis um, because of the probability of a false positive. I mean, in her case, the probability is very high that she gets the false positive, that she reports the symptoms. But uh, even if she does, the probability that she has ADHD remains low. Whew, that's a lot to think about. I mean... <laughs> I might also just like giving stimulants as performance-enhancing drugs without a confident diagnosis of ADHD, and I can do that if that's my clinical practice. I mean, for your information, it's not. But I am a doctor, and society gives me a broad range of practice parameters. All I have to say is a positive test on the words, and then give her stimulants. Bayesian reasoning is likely operating in your mind whether you realize it or not, whether you can do that funky math or not. If you're a provider in a residential treatment facility for substance use disorders, and you have decided that you will not give your patients screening tests for ADHD, you are likely operating under the implicit assumption that false positive rates will be much higher than the true positive rates. You don't even have to bother to do the math. That is your implicit bias. Your prior probability that they would have a true positive is so low in your mind that you decided you won't even give the test. However, the science of our field will advance better when the basic science of our studies can inform us better as to what the actual prevalence 
of disorders are in a population and in subgroups within populations and what those likelihood ratios truly are for any given test. When we deal with uncertainty, it is imperative that we're able to ground ourselves in something more concrete than just basic assumptions. Simply having a good estimate of a related population's prevalence can really help me to decide what range my priors should be estimated in. Are they more than 10%, less than 10%, you know, more than uh, 50%, less than 50%. And then I can plug those numbers in and get a range of probabilities to decide, you know, can I be confident in this result? I hope that I did not just convince you to never listen to this podcast again. I resisted the urge to go into a lot of detail uh, about the math and other terms that maybe later I'll introduce more, but if you're interested in more details, I do recommend that you Google, just Google Bayesian reasoning and give it a whirl. Look for Bayesian calculators and see how they work. It may help you to understand how to be much more precise and accurate about what your brain is probably already doing implicitly. Thank you for listening. I am Dr. O'Leary, and this has been an episode of Sidactic Residency Edition.